Hey, all, we need your help. We're hoping to raise $10,000 over the next few months to help cover the costs of a few current and upcoming projects. These include, but are not limited to, a complete redesign of our logo and design work for merchandise with our soon-to-be-announced store. Your donations will also be tax-deductible as we've just turned in the paperwork towards becoming an official nonprofit. Any amount is immensely helpful and we'll personally email each donor a thank you. Absolutely everything we do on this show is to make sure the gospel is heard throughout the world and the barrier of entry into confessional reform theology is as low as possible. So go to our show notes and click the link that says donor box at the top of the page and donate. Now on with the show. And so there's a tendency where some people are just like, well, the word of God speaks to every area of life. Yeah. Right. And, and therefore, you know, we're the experts yep. on economics, on poli- mm. you know, policies, on mathematics, on, you know, and, and so that's another thing um, I, I think it's helpful to understand is going back to the Westminster Confession um, to, to understand not only the, the, the sufficiency and the scope of general revelation, but also the sufficiency and scope of special revelation. Mm. Welcome to the Guilt Grace Gratitude Podcast, a show devoted to bridging the gap to the historic Reformed Christian faith. Listen in as two friends, a layman Nick and a pastor Peter, discuss core doctrines of our confessional traditions with seminary and college professors, seasoned pastors, and more. These seasonal episodes exist to reach those outside the church, those in the pews, behind pulpits, and in the academy with rich truths of Reformed theology, and remind ourselves weekly how the finished work of Jesus Christ changes everything. Hello, everyone. Yet once again, it's another day of fresh grace and mercy. This is the Guilt, Grace, Gratitude podcast, sponsored by Logos Bible Software, where we bridge the gap to Reformed Christian theology for your listening pleasure. And we're on a season six episode, and we're going to be doing general and special revelation. Our guest today is my pastor, Reverend Jonathan Morsh, and he's going to be talking to us about this very important Reformed theology doctrine and uh, general and special revelation. And so we'll jump into your, in, the, in a moment, but in our show notes is a reminder. There's just some links and information resources to help you guys along. If you need to find a confessional or reformed church to call home, there is a link for a local church finder. There's also information about Logos Bible Software, our main sponsor, and Westminster California Seminary. So check that out. And then also our confessional podcasting network that we started. There's about six other podcasts in that network we started. Uh, the The link to the website is there, and check out those other really good podcasts out there and what they have, what they're going, what they're doing, and what they have uh, talking about. So, also just information about how to connect with Peter and myself. You can connect with us, of course, on email, like everyone, guiltgracepod at gmail.com. on Twitter and Instagram at guiltgracepod. 
And then these conversations are on our YouTube page as well. So just go to YouTube and subscribe to us. So without further ado, I'll let Peter further, further introduce my pastor, Reverend Jonathan Morsh. Yeah, we got Reverend Jonathan Morsh. Uh, it feels weird having me introduce him instead of, of you, but this is, this is the way we do it. was born and raised in Southern California in a Christian home, uh, has an understanding of God's Word, came to embrace doctrines articulated by the Protestant Reformation as being more faithful or a more faithful expression of the teaching of Scripture. Graduated from Westminster Seminary, California in 2008 with an MDiv degree, <clears throat> which is part of the reason why we have him on, because all of uh, this season's guests are either alumni, alumnus from Westminster Seminary, California, or current faculty of Westminster Seminary, California. In 2012, he was called by the Southern California Presbytery of the OPC to serve as a church planter for the Trinity, uh, for Trinity Presbyterian Church in Capistrano Beach. And in 2016, Trinity Presbyterian, which is Nick's church, and the, uh, the pastor is Jonathan Morsh, became a new and separate congregation, and Jonathan was called as its pastor. He and his wife, Kristen, have three boys. So after that scintillating introduction, <laughs> Reverend Morsh, it's, it's a pleasure having you on again for the second time. Well, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure being here. Of course, yeah. This is, it's fun because you guys, a little known fact about um, Jonathan, and before we get into your uh, more kind of fuller bio, is uh, you don't listen to podcasts, yet you're on a podcast. So it's, it's kind of That's a, a right. fun uh, factoid. It's a very strange thing. <laughs> <laughs> so you technically have listened now to one podcast, and mm -hmm. you're about to listen to your second. So congratulations. Thank you. Maybe, maybe I do, or maybe I don't have some influence on, on pestering you at church to be like, hey, do you want to come on the show again? I mean, you're a natural <laughs> educator. You're so good at this stuff, so I want to get you out there. Absolutely, well, yes. Appreciate so, it. Thank you. Yeah. Reverend Morse, maybe give our listeners more than just kind of the the uh, bullet point stuff about yourself. So a little bit more about yourself, your background, and what you do. Yeah, as you said, you know, I was raised in Southern California. I grew up in um, North County, San Diego. Uh, I was I was not raised in a Reformed or Presbyterian church, but I was raised in a Christian home, going to uh, Calvary Chapel, mm -hmm. uh, Calvary Chapel Vista, most of my life. Um, uh, one thing is I, uh, I've always wanted to be a pastor my whole life. And, uh, in, in Calvary, that's not, um, uh, that's not so unique. I think most people are encouraged to be on staff or serve the Lord in that way. Uh, but when I became, once I was graduating from high school, I was very interested in theology. I had some, some friends and, uh, a, an older pastor mentor who all of us together were reading and studying and and um, finding out more about the Reformed faith. And uh, I remember um, you know, having discussions and kind of debates with friends and, and saying, you know, I really wish there was a place where we could go where somebody would, would be able to answer all of our questions. Because I, I <laughs> really assumed that all the Reformed people were dead. Uh, you know, huh. Lloyd-Jones, Spurgeon, you know, people like that didn't exist anymore. And... Um, then lo and behold, we find out, well, actually, no, the, there's reformed people who are alive and well, and actually, they don't <laughs> live very far from you. And so uh, I, I actually had no idea that Westminster Seminary, California existed. It was probably, I, I'd say, probably about 10 miles from where I grew I up. Most of San Diego does not know Westminster exists. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And then when I was a student, people were like, where's that? Where, yeah. you know. Even Escondido um, people do not know that Westminster yeah. exists. Yep. Yeah. 
little the little city on the hill there. Yeah, um, exactly. So you know, having uh, you know, eventually found out about um, the Westminster Seminary uh, through the White Horse Inn. Uh, you know, obviously listening to uh, "Renewing Your Mind" with R.C. Sproul. This is mm-hmm. this was all on the radio. Um, so before podcasts, it was called the radio. What's the radio? I've listen, never heard of that. Yeah, I listen to that a lot. Um, so you know, long story short, um, ended up going to Westminster. Never even um, thought for a second of. of checking out any other seminary i mean why why would i live so close um i was already married at the time our young our oldest son was born we were we were established uh in north county um i did know westminster philadelphia existed um because i i had learned about that history of westminster but really didn't even know about the other reformed seminaries um until my time at westminster when i kind of heard you know other people mention them but, you know, in retrospect, I think the Lord had me at the right place. I'm very thankful for all the things that I learned there. Um, seminary doesn't teach you everything there is to know, but they equip you for lifelong learning. Oh, yeah. And I think the strength at Westminster, what I really appreciated the most uh, was how uh, each and every one of the professors modeled what it looked like to be a pastor scholar. Hmm. Their pastoral heart mixed with, you know, top-notch um, scholarly uh, work and you know some men like Michael Horton, uh, you know uh, R. Scott Clark, David Van Drunen, uh, Steve Baugh, Brian Estelle. I'm, I'm sure all the you've, you know your listeners are familiar with these men. I'm sure they've been on your uh, show. Yeah. Um, you know these guys not only taught me you know how to study the scriptures, but how to live the scriptures too. So you've already kind of answered part of my second question, but. Um... Maybe let uh, let our listeners know again because this is uh, this season's devoted to to West Cal, uh, an institution that both of us are graduates of now. Um, what what maybe what was your education like, and um, since now graduating fifteen years ago, how has it formed and shaped you as a pastor? Yeah, it's hard to believe it's been fifteen years. Um, you know, it seems like yesterday. Yeah. At at. Uh, it sometimes, of course, seems like an eternity ago. Um, you know, it, 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 Westminster, Seminary, California is very, um, I mean, they're, they're known for uh, academic rigor, mm-hmm. you know, uh, a focus upon the languages. So, you know, just taking that, for example, um, you know, in, in my regular duties as, as a pastor in, in sermon preparation, in preparing, um, you know, to teach Sunday school. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm doing a, a a chapel tomorrow at my son's Christian school. Um, I'm I'm reading the original Greek and Hebrew yep. uh, before I prepare yep. even even a chapel for elementary school kids. You know yep. because mm-hmm. that is we confess that's God's word. Yeah, uh, that's God's word. You know, and um, and so you know being trained in the languages, I'm by no means um, a scholar, uh, you know, an expert in the languages, yeah. but I'm proficient. You know, I can I can work with the commentary. I could work. Um, you know, it, at, at that level. And then of course, you know, having the full, um, you know, the theological undergirding um, where um, you know, that's tied to the, to the confessions, either the Westminster standards or the three forms of unity. Yeah. Those are, those are documents that I use as guardrails to help me in my, in my uh, understanding of scripture, my teaching of scripture. And um, yeah. So, you know, th- those, those two things, I think the the confessional, 
the, the integrity to the confessional standards and the, the use of the original languages are helping on an almost daily basis. Awesome. That's great. Yeah, that's helpful. Um, <clears throat> getting into the meat of the conversation and the topic again, uh, general and special revelation for the audience. Uh, we will, you know, start by just defining terms, just brass tacks, assuming that our audience either knows nothing or they need a nice refresher. Um, so what is general and special revelation? I know that's a giant question. That's pretty much going to sum up the entire conversation, but you know, there are some other terms out there. We've heard of the book of nature, the book of scripture, natural law, those type of terms as well. So could you unpack it for a little bit for us, our introduction to warm up this conversation? Yeah, absolutely. So t- I'll, t- I'll take the second word first, revelation. What do we mean by revelation? Uh, what we mean is, is God's communication of himself to us. How it is that God reveals or makes himself known to us, his reasonable creatures. And so um, the, the idea of revelation, whether it's special or general revelation, assumes uh, a fundamental distinction between the creator and the creature. Hmm. And so when we think of, of revelation, we shouldn't think of an inner voice, an inner light, something that comes from within. E- yeah. even, even though we confess that God ha- writes his moral law on the heart of every man, it's God who writes it. <laughs> it's, that's God's law. It's not man's law. Mm-hmm. So revelation does not originate from within. It comes from without. It is uh, God, the creator, uh, making himself both his, his power, his, his nature, his attributes, and his will uh, to us, his reasonable creatures. Um, so that's revelation in a broad sense. But then we mm-hmm. further distinguish between general revelation and special revelation. By general revelation, we are referring to how God makes himself known to us through his creation and through his acts of providence. So what we might, might call nature, right? Creation. Um, and then special revelation, of, of course, is how God has made himself known to us um, through direct communication, uh, you know, as it was in the Old Testament with the prophets, in the New Testament, in his son, and ultimately how it has been written down for us and, and, you know, so for us, special revelation is the word of God. Awesome. So, um, and this is not just something we, uh, we kind of came up with ourselves, like you said, and we'll, we'll get into some more confessional and catechetical boundaries with this too. But where first, where do we see these talked about in scripture? We didn't just kind of make this up one day. It's like, Oh, this is, this is kind of a cool doctrine, but where, where do we find this in scripture? And then how are they talked about or introduced in scripture as well? Yeah, uh, good question. Yeah, so yeah, th- we did not make this up ourselves. We see this clearly taught in scripture. And, and also another thing I'd like just to highlight uh, before yeah. jumping to the text is, you know, we, uh, you know we're, we're speaking as Reformed Christians, but it's important to understand that this distinction between general and special revelation is not a distinctively Reformed doctrine, although yeah. it, it definitely is developed by men such as totally. Calvin and in the Westminster standards, it, it is a Catholic doctrine with a small C. It's, it's something yeah. that the church universal has believed. Um, and so where do we see this? Well, you know, when you think of God's two means of communication, what, what the Belgic confession calls his two books, I think it's most clearly seen in Psalm 19. Mm. Um, Psalm 19, a Psalm of David, 
of course, begins by saying the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. And so here Psalm 19 begins by talking about that first book of nature, a general revelation, how God uh, communicates his glory uh, to us, his creatures. And speaking of the heavens and the, the work of his hands as proclaiming in a, in a universally understood language um, his his glory and his power right so that that being the first part of the psalm but then moving on uh david then transitions from general revelation to what we might call special revelation when he speaks of the law of the lord in verse seven saying the law of the lord is perfect reviving the soul the testimony of the lord is sure making wise the simple the precepts of the lord are right rejoicing the heart the commandment of the lord is pure enlightening the eyes the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. So here, David, you know, lumping together different synonyms for the law, the Torah, God's special revelation as he's made known to the Israelites uh, through the mediation of Moses at Mount Sinai. Um, so this being God's special revelation. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um Maybe as a slight, I could follow-up. go other places too if you if you want me to. Yeah, no, and I think uh, as jumping you go to, to other- Romans one, uh, no doubt with Psalm nineteen in mind, um, mm-hmm. Paul, in speaking of the unbelieving pagan world, um, he says in verse nineteen. So this is Romans one nineteen. For what can be known about God is plain to them. Because God has shown it to them for his Mm. invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature. Notice there, Paul actually specifies what he means by his invisible attributes, right? Um, He delineates what we might call natural theology, what can be known about God from nature. Uh, his uh, His eternal power and divine nature have clearly been, uh, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So there again is a, is a classic proof text for um, what we can call general revelation. Yeah, that's good. And, and I actually was writing down too the Matthew five to six acts 17 as well. Um, kind of point to the way <clears throat> in acts 14 Psalms eight um, also could probably point to general special revelation as well um and maybe yeah yeah psalm 8 being a creation psalm um i was planning i was actually intending to to go to acts 14 and 17 as well um so i could do that now if you like uh yeah sure uh, i i think when we think of the utility of general revelation right and and the use of both general and special revelation um, I think you could see that uh, clearly play out in the book of Acts mm-hmm. when you when you compare and contrast Paul's preaching, um, what we might call what we can consider his synagogue sermons, uh, those sermons that he delivered in the context of a synagogue where people knew the law of Moses, where the law, the law, and the prophets were read every Sabbath. Um, the sermon that you that he would preach there, like in Acts 13, 
um, where he goes straight to the scriptures in order to prove that Jesus is the Messiah, right? Mm-hmm. Um, comparing that with the sermons that he preaches in a pagan Gentile context where they do not know the Old Testament scriptures. They, do not, they, they, they don't know the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They're not familiar with the Torah, right? Uh, how does he preach to them? Does he open up his Bible? Well, no, like in Acts 17, when he's in Athens, right? Uh, uh, using as a segue into his sermon, this, this idol that they had uh, attributed to the unknown God, right? In order to kind of cover all their bases, make sure they're not overlooking any other God, just in case they left one out. Here he is. Paul says, mm-hmm. what you therefore, what, what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. And so how is, how is uh, Paul preaching to them uh, uh, God? He's, he's preaching to them as God the creator, right? Um, and he says, nor, this is verse 25, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation uh, uh, of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and their boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we indeed are his offspring." So here Paul is appealing to what we can call the book of nature, general revelation. Mm-hmm. He's speaking of God as creator. He's speaking about God, how God has made known his, his power. Um, he's um, even quoting from some of the Greek philosophers to prove his point. Right? Mm-hmm. He's not quoting from the Old Testament scriptures. He's quoting from Greek, uh, from, uh, Greek philosophers, Epimenides and uh, Aratus, um, positively now selectively he's not endorsing everything that they said but selectively he's able to even mm-hmm. use the language that they say in him we live and move and have our being uh, this notion that god is everywhere right um and 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 that he is our creator so that in one sense we are all his offspring he's using general revelation to establish his point um, now of course he's going to go on to talk about the resurrection of christ Mm-hmm. which is when he'll get shut down because Greek mm-hmm. philosophers mm-hmm. think that's silly, mm-hmm. right? Uh, but he's using this as his entry point uh, in order to uh, establish common ground with them. Mm. Sounds like he was bridging the gap and then, way before we did. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And, you know, uh, this is the, you know, one of the reasons why I like to, to point this out. And then also in Acts 14 is actually, even in, 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 in recent, I'd say maybe in the last 100 years or so, even in reform circles, um, we've kind of lost the value of general revelation yeah. and, and mm-hmm. thought and, and maybe spoke, well, because general revelation doesn't get you salvation, which we'll talk about, its limits, yeah. right? I think we undermine its sufficiency and its, its utility. Mm-hmm. So um, Acts 14, other pagan con text in the city of Lystra uh, we know that there is no significant there, there's no Jewish population here because there's no synagogue and as, as Paul and Barnabas go into Lystra 
uh, the Gila man and uh, the inhabitants begin worshiping them as gods. Uh, they think Barnabas is Zeus and Paul is Hermes because he's oh, yeah. the chief speaker. He's the spokesperson. Um, and so, you know, as soon as they realize what's happening, you know, they, they tear their garments. They're besides themselves. They don't want to be worshipped. And they, they say in verse 15, men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you. Notice what they're appealing there to like nature, right? Um, They have, we have, something in common, human nature. There's something we can learn from this, right? Um, And we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God. And notice again, how they reference God, not as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, because they would have said, who are those guys? But how do they, they refer to God as the one who made the heaven, the earth, and the sea, and all that is in them, right? Mm-hmm. A monotheistic God, the one living and true God. Um, this is another important thing to, to highlight. Uh, Karl Barth famously or infamously yep. denied uh, natural theology. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, the the strong word nine there's no natural theology Ah. right and he says because all that natural theology will get you is a generic god Mm -hmm. and not god as he has revealed himself to us in christ but you see bart was mistaken there in that general revelation is god's revelation it is the living and true god's revelation it is the triune triune god creator god's revelation to his reasonable creatures and so we can get true knowledge. It is possible to have true, albeit not self-ific, not saving knowledge, but true knowledge of the true God. So this God who made this the earth, the heaven, the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. Um, he says in verse 17, Paul says, he did not leave himself without witness. So again, there's that, you know, picking up that language of Psalm 19, that universal language. Yep. There's this witness for he did good. By giving you rains from heaven and fruitful season, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Mm-hmm. So notice here how Paul is appealing, not just to God as creator, but also God as sustainer, as the one who in his providence sends rain upon the just and unjust alike. And so what is it that, that the, the men of life should already know from God's governance of the universe is that he's good. He's a good God. He's a powerful God. He's a good God. Um, and, and, you know, giving them these good things, right? And then we read that even with these words, they scarcely restrain the people from offering sacrifice to them. So, you know, fell on deaf ears, which we'll talk about, you know, men take that knowledge and suppress it mm-hmm. and engage in foolish things like idolatry. But, um, but it, it is, you see Paul using this. So I think we have good reason to do it too. Awesome. Yeah. <clears throat> that's good and um so you left off kind of saying falling on deaf ears and they suppress it like in romans one saying back to that and then um so that was really helpful explaining uh where it is in scripture and so i think it, 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 this really is a helpful bridge into this next question because it goes into in a kind of a linear way timeline the Westminster or I'm sorry, the reform confessions and catechisms, which are the Westminster standards, the three forms of unity in particular. So if we can make a connection with scripture in our beloved confessions and catechisms as reform peoples connecting them, what do our 
reformed confessions and catechisms do about this? What what do they do? They differ in any way? Are they are there slight nuances in the way that reformed have understood them, or um, are they really all on the same page and match perfectly with Scripture? Yeah, well, um, you know, I, I would say yes, they are faithful to Scripture. Uh, I already referenced the Belgic Confession, Article Two, which speaks of you know yep. the two books of creation of of uh, God. Uh, creation, the book of nature, and uh, God's special revelation. Mm-hmm. Uh, Westminster Confession of Faith famously begins with the words, although the light of nature mm-hmm. and the works of creation and providence do so far manifest the goodness, wisdom, and power of God, right? And so, you know, it, Westminster Confession jumps right out of the gates with this notion of the yep. light of nature. Yep. And um, and that term, that, that term light of nature was actually a term that was frequently used, if you look at um, not just um, uh, throughout the Westminster standards, but amongst the men who wrote the standards uh, and, and in reformed literature, that, that phrase, that term light of nature is referring to what is, what is it, what is it that we can learn about God uh, through nature? Um, that, that terms actually was used back in the canons of Dort. So some 40, 30, 30 some years, I'm not good with math, but a few <laughs> yeah, decades like before. 25, 30 continent. years before, yep. Uh, in the West, uh, Canons of Dort, this is uh, 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 third and fourth main points of doctrine, um, Article 4. They say, there is, to be sure, a certain light of nature remaining in man after the fall, by virtue of which he retains some notions about God, natural things, and the difference between what is moral and immoral, and demonstrates a certain eagerness for virtue and for good outward behavior. So this might this might be shocking for some people to hear. Yeah. Uh, the the play, you know the the canons from which we get the five points of Calvinism, <laughs> yeah. right, yeah. are saying that there is to be sure a certain light of nature retained in fallen man after the fall. Now, uh, they will go on just as Westminster Confession one goes on to say that this light of nature this knowledge that fallen man has only gets them to the point where they are without excuse and here they're reflecting what paul says in uh, in romans chapter one uh which i i left off uh in my reading of verse 20 it says you know these things have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so they are without excuse mm-hmm. so we've talked about the sufficiency of general revelation, of general revelation, the light of nature, but we need to also talk about its limits. It only gets you, it, it gets you to know about the living and true God, that there is a God, that he's good, that he's powerful, that you're not him. Right. But it'll only leave you to the point where you are without excuse at the last day. Mm-hmm. So no man can stand before God and say, well, I didn't know you existed. Right. It does not offer saving knowledge. It doesn't give you the gospel. Totally. And that's why we need special revelation. And that's why that's what the uh, Westminster chapter one can, uh, goes on to say, or it says, um, yet they are not sufficient to give the, that knowledge of God and of his will, which is necessary unto salvation. And uh, it goes on to talk about the need for God to reveal himself in a special way, uh, uh, specifically uh, to give us the gospel. Other uh, section uh, I could just highlight briefly, um, as I said, that this term light of nature a- appears, um, I-, I didn't count all the occurrences, but a-, a number of times in 
the Westminster Confession of Faith and then the larger catechism. Um, in chapter 21 of the Westminster Confession of Faith, it actually goes on to um, just to uh, detail a bit more what it is that we can know about God through uh, the light of nature. So this is 21.1. It says the light of nature shows that there is a God who has lordship and sovereignty over all, is good and does good unto all, and is therefore to be feared, loved, praised, called upon, trusted in, and served with all the heart and with all the soul and with all the might. Uh, so all of those things we, we confess are, are, um, sh- or can be known uh, through, uh, through the light of nature, except, of course, then goes on to say, but the acceptable way of worshiping him is only known through his word, uh, general, or sorry, special revelation. As you probably know, we talk a lot about Westminster Seminary, California on here. I can't even begin to tell you the impact this institution has had on my faith, my family, and the ministry the Lord has entrusted me with. If you feel called to serve the church and want the most rigorous training for gospel ministry around, consider coming to Westminster Seminary, California, a confessionally reformed institution in sunny San Diego that offers master's degrees in biblical and theological studies, historical theology, and divinity. Westminster's approach to ministry education emphasizes a mastery of the original biblical languages, maintaining a small student-to-professor ratio, a laser focus on face-to-face education coupled with an understanding of the importance of having pastor-scholars with decades of ministry experience, train the next generation of servant leaders for the Church of Jesus Christ. If this interests you, and I hope it does, call Westminster today at 888-480-8474 to talk to admissions counselor or visit www.wscal.edu. Again, call Westminster Seminary California today at 888-480-8474. 8474 or log on to www.wscal.edu, which will all be available in our show notes. Westminster Seminary, California, for Christ, his gospel, and his church. Yeah. Um, so getting getting into maybe some, some uh, misconceptions, and you've already talked about some misconceptions a little bit, but maybe we can get further into it. Uh, how, how have you seen not just misconceptions, but maybe misunderstandings? There is another interesting um, uh, thing that comes up in chapter 19 of the Westminster Confession of Faith, which of course is the chapter on the law of God. Uh, there it talks about how God made his moral will known to Adam, and then that moral will is summarized in the Ten Commandments. Um, and uh, and and but in in the section where it's talking about the judicial laws of the mosaic economy, so the the civil laws that that, that governed Israelite society, it says that those are no longer binding on on modern day notions uh, uh, nations, except insofar as general equity requires. Mm-hmm. And there's this term general equity that they use, which actually, if you compare it, it, it amongst the literature at the time it it had a uh it had a uh it was kind of a technical term that was synonymous roughly with with this notion of natural law in romans chapter two paul talks about how the gentiles who do not have the law 
do that which the law requires. And he says uh, in, in Romans 2, they show, this is 2.15, that the work of the law is written on their hearts mm-hmm. while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Now, this idea of, of what Paul's uh, language of the work of the law being written on their hearts is not the same thing as the new covenant promise that God uh, says that he will write his law on our hearts as his people, giving us not only the knowledge, but the desire and ability to begin in this life to obey not just some, but all of God's commands. No, this is a, a notion, a, a basic sense of right and wrong, so that every man knows um, you know, the, the, the basic distinction between right and wrong. They know it's wrong to murder. They know it's wrong to commit adultery. Hmm. Um, they, you know, they, they, know all, they know all these things, so they have God's law written on their heart. Um, but of course they don't do it perfectly because they're fallen man. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so that brings us to this notion of general equity and how this can apply to other societies. And there's, is an interesting use that Paul does in first Corinthians nine. So it's interesting to see, uh, Paul use an example of the application of general equity in first Corinthians chapter nine. Uh, where he's making an argument how it's it's uh, rightful for ministers of the gospel to be paid uh, for their labors in the, in the ministry. Um, and he uh, he asks, it, beginning in verse 7, uh, who serves as a soldier as, at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? And so, you know, here, here's just examples from everyday life uh, mm-hmm. where, you know, pretty much everyone, he could appeal to common common notions. And from common experience that, yeah, you don't, if you put the work into it, you should get something out of it. Right. Mm -hmm. And then, um, and then it's interesting because he applies it then to a civil law of the old Testament in verse eight, he says, do I say these things on human authority? So that, that term human authority has to do with light of nature, you know, common notions. Yeah. Does not the law say the same for it is written in the law of Moses. You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. So this is my, you know, one of my favorite proof texts for why pastors should get paid because I'm like an ox, right? And I'm treading the grain. You should, I should at least be able to, you know. Um, so yeah, just here's an application of general equity. Um, and this is actually one of the proof texts that the Westminster Standards cite in chapter 19, section four, where they talk about the, the gen, this general equity. Hmm. Yeah, so with, with this, um, but and you've already kind of kind of broached the the topic a little bit both misconceptions a little bit of misunderstandings but um as as we know and i I think some of our listeners might know or they might have kind of a a low understanding or kind of misunderstanding whatever it is they've they've heard this misunderstood or misconceived um so how how have you seen god's general and special revelation either misunderstood or misconceived and what are some common misconceptions you've run into you've already talked about bart and that might be a um, kind of an academic, but I think he, he kind of reaches kind of the real world as well. And how would you respond to some of these misunderstandings and misconceptions? Yeah, so Bart specifically, uh, you know, because he says gen- uh, general revelation, natural theology will only get you a generic God, to which yeah. I would say, no, it's the, it's the triune God. It's the living and true God uh, who has revealed himself to us through his creation. So the knowledge you get is true, real knowledge. Yeah. Um, 
The other extreme, of course, is to is to jump. You know, if you if you deny natural theology altogether, that's one extreme. Mm-hmm. The other extreme is to is to, you know to go hog wild with natural theology and find <laughs> yeah. you know find the Trinity in all sorts of things. You know, yeah. you, you you look at uh you know the three states of water and that teaches you about the Trinity. Or you know you look at an apple; it has the outside the the well, core and the seeds. You're not supposed to do that stuff. And... I've been teaching Sunday school wrong this whole time. <laughs> That's heresy. The egg analogy. Uh, no, you <laughs> yeah. do not get the Trinity. If you from, ever yeah, have to use an analogy, don't use an analogy. Yes, <laughs> or, or use God's analogies, right? Exactly. God yeah, has that's what, that's made what I mean. himself with you know, and so um, that's the opposite extreme. I uh, yeah. So um, you know, obviously, it's abused on both ends. Um, so we need to understand the sufficiency of general, the purpose and sufficiency of general revelation, but also its limitations. It, it renders people without excuse, right? So we shouldn't avoid it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you shouldn't, you know, and, and, that, and that's more, I think, in, in kind of more our circles. I think there, it, it, there's, no one's denying sure. this, but maybe the thought is, well, because we have special revelation yeah. um, and because general revelation has to be interpreted through special yeah. revelation, then it, in essence, they just minimize it so much you just don't even hmm. deal with it. Can you maybe, and, and I think we've seen this, and this is not a new creep up, but I think we've seen this creep up a little bit more recently, um, where you, and, and it's good, like you should favor God's special revelation, but you so favor his special revelation that you forget, like he created, he created a world and a, a good world, yes, marred by sin and under sin's curse. Um, but maybe talk a little bit more, like how does that maybe play itself out if people are like, okay, am I, am I doing this stuff? Am I, am I maybe misunderstanding God's uh, general revelation? It's not like, different in the sense like he's revealing himself differently in general than he has special revelation just not like he said not as fully so maybe like how does maybe how does this play out in in everyday life or theology yeah um well i think there there might be a tendency for some in in our circles to say because we have the truth we have special revelation therefore we have the key to knowledge Mm. and we know everything yep and so there's a tendency where some people are just like, well, the word of God speaks to every area of life. Yeah. Right. And, and therefore, you know, we're the experts yep. on economics, on poli- mm. you know, policies, on mathematics, on, you know, and, and so that's another thing um, I, I think it's helpful to understand is going back to the Westminster confession um, to, to understand not only the, the, the sufficiency and the scope of general revelation, but also the sufficiency and scope of special revelation. Mm. Uh, we, we confess in, in one, so Westminster Confession 1.6, it says yep. the whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture. So, so God has told us everything we need to know uh, in order to enjoy him and glorify him forever. But he hasn't told us everything there is to know yeah. in his word. The Bible doesn't tell you how to change the oil of your car. Uh, the Bible doesn't, I used to say, the Bible doesn't tell you how to program your VCR until people <laughs> said, well, what's a VCR? <laughs> right? yeah. um, you know, the Bible doesn't tell you how to work, work out your internet connection. Um, now, it, it says things about your internet connection, right? Sure. Like what you should be using your internet for and not for, yeah. right? It speaks to those areas, but it doesn't, it, it doesn't, um, 
it doesn't uh, you know micromanage. It doesn't go down to the level of every single detail. Um, even in the in the c- confession in that same chapter, it acknowledges there's some circumstances concerning the worship of God and government of the church common to human action societies, which are be to be ordered by the light of nature. <laughs> so even the way we do church, yep. the Bible doesn't doesn't specify out down to the details. Yeah, um, we we're, we we're guided even in that area area of life by the light of nature as well. <clears throat> that's yeah. Before Nick goes, that's. That's exactly where I was hoping. That was, I admit, I, that was a leading question. I was hoping you would get there, and you did, because that's. I think. I think that does scare. I took people. the bait. Yeah, that's, I think. I think it does scare a, a lot of. Um, I think really well-meaning reform people or, or just Bible-believing people that you're saying, well, the Bible doesn't like talk specifically about this, and um, I think it's a really helpful understanding on what the Bible is is giving us and whom God is presenting to us and how he is presenting himself to us um, versus, um, and not like, it's, it sounds weird, but like we, we try to make the Bible say more than it does when mm. what the Bible says is completely sufficient for what it needs to say. Yes. Yeah. Good point. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah I mean, it, to echo that it's God gave us just what we need to know about you know and it could be re- frustrating it was like god why did why did you tell us more but that's it's right he gave us, what's he gave us for faith and salvation he gave us the uh understanding of redemptive history and salvation and we're going to spend eternity in heaven learning the depths of god there's no physical way that he could have re- revealed all that he is in scripture because on when we're in heaven we're going to spend eternity learning the depths of him yeah and it, so, it also helps us to like understand not the difference, but um, like how can non-Christians be good people versus mm. Christians being good people? It's, it's because they, like they still have access to God's good creation. They're still, I mean, yep. we've, we'll talk about what, what Dr. Brian is still about the image of God, but like there's, there's things that they have because God created the world good. And it's not like Christians makes you like a good person versus non-Christian makes you a horrible, terrible person who just kills people all the time. Yeah. And we, we start wondering, okay, like how, how can they do this stuff? And, and how are they, like, how are they able to do things that we, we can seemingly do as well? Yeah. Perfect, perfect bridge into this question as, you know, we're kind of talking a little bit about the moral law and us made in God's image. We're image bearers, whether you're a believer or not. Um, there's that creator creature distinction. So we're all, human beings made in the image of God. There's a moral law written on our heart. That is kind of what Peter was just talking about there. And, you know, before I ask, before I go into my question, there's some things to kind of mention too, that kind of beef up the question for you too, is, you know, even John Calvin, he said that the sense uh, of divinity is at the same time, the seed of religion. And I bring that up because this question I have is a very popular argument that, and John, you mentioned it earlier in the conversation of people, people in remote tribes, you know, people in millions of years ago, then on some Island, they never heard any, they didn't get access to the, uh, anything to do with the Bible. Even today, there might be somebody that is in some, uh, part of the world. That's never heard, uh, the name of Jesus, uh, the gospel. I think you guys get the point with what I'm saying. Um, so, so if, if someone's never heard the Bible and don't have it in their language and they never heard the gospel, do these doctrines have any bearing on how we understand these scenarios as 
they are also image bearers of God too. Yeah, I would say so. Um, you know, so one thing for sure is that they do have the light of nature, as as Paul clearly teaches in Romans chapter one. Yep. God has clearly shown His power, His invisible attributes to them, so that they are without excuse. Mm-hmm. Uh, Canons of Dort make this point. I quoted this section previously, where it says there is to be sure a certain light of nature remaining in man after the fall, but then it goes on to say, but this light of nature is far from enabling man to come to a saving knowledge of God and conversion to Him. So far, in fact, that man does not use it rightly, even in matters of nature and society. Instead, in various ways, he completely distorts this light, whatever its precise character, and suppresses it in unrighteousness, referencing there uh, Romans 1 again. Mm-hmm. And in so doing, he renders himself without excuse before God. Jesus is clear. He says there's only one name given under heaven by which we can be saved, and it's mm-hmm. his. Um, you're only saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone which gives uh, true urgency oh, yeah. to the Great Commission in Matthew mm-hmm. 28, right? I mean, that, that, it, if, if fallen man could be saved through the light of nature, Jesus could have told his disciples, hey, you guys are good. I'll, I'll take care of it, you know. Uh, <laughs> no, yeah. he says, go into all nations and make disciples, right? And so um, there's true urgency there uh, to get the word out, to translate the Bible into, into various languages, and uh, to go into those remote tribes. Quick little plug for our own podcast here. If you are an individual and you want to help donate for this work, you can go to our show notes, to our Patreon page, as well as our Spotify donations page. If you want to make a recurring donations, they're either 15 or $20 a month or a single donation. You can also do that as well. Those really help us on the back end to give to this work, to keep up our website, to make sure we can pay those who help with our editing, with our software, with our merchandising, all all those good things. If you're a potential sponsor and you want to sponsor us and and fill out one of our ads, you can email us at guiltgracepod at gmail.com and we can talk through some of the options that we have. And we would love to work with both individuals and publishers, institutions, seminaries, whoever it may be as we all work towards our mission of bridging the gap to reform Christian theology. Yep. Help expand our work and be a bridge builder. Yeah. yeah. Before, before next last question, maybe a little bit of a, um, a, a slight, like, like kind of putting a point on a, something you said and just maybe a little bit more filling you out. When, when you talked about Psalm 19, where the heavens declare the glory of God, cause um, our, our, and this is, this is a rhetorical question. So people are listening to this. Are you literally saying like, the heavens are actually proclaiming, like there's a voice coming from heaven, proclaiming to all people, a general revelation, like, hey, here's a God and he's real and he's holy, all that stuff. Or like, how does general revelation proclaim this God? Yeah, so it says through his creation and through his providence, right? So, um, so no, it is not an audible voice, uh, but it is a universally understood language, right? And in, in just by the very existence of those things, um, you know, reasonable creatures should know and do know that there must be a powerful God who has created us and mm-hmm. created all things around us in such a glorious way. Um, and, you know, this, another thing I wanted to highlight with, uh, with general revelation is it's not just for the unbeliever. Hmm. Um, it's, it, we should just be using it for apologetic purposes. Um, yeah. This should first and foremost uh, cause us to praise God. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right mm-hmm. i mean this is for his people right psalm 19 
or think of Psalm 104, right? It's a creation Psalm, um, praising God for his acts of creation and providence. Uh, that, that should spur us on as his people to glorify him and, and only secondarily use it for apologetics. Mm-hmm. And then um, going back to kind of the, the people in the remote tribes kind of uh, question, something that's uh, kind of helped me, and I've, I've had these conversations with people too, and, and it's saying what you just said, John, is like, you know, they, yes, they, they do need to hear the gospel. That gave urgency to Matthew 28. They say, well, what happens if they just didn't hear it? Well, that's where we have comfort in the providence of God and the elect. God knows who his people are. He's not going to let somebody slip through the cracks. He's not going to let somebody die and be like, oh, shoot, Peter Bell or John Morris or Nick Nick didn't get to him. Uh, Sorry, you missed your chance. No, he knows no matter what, who his people are, they're going to be saved. He uses us as tools and methods to get there. But we don't need to really um, get too scared or worried that um, if they're that uh, that's out of our hands, that's that's a God. God's elect. He's not going to let anybody perish that's not his elect is that right john yeah absolutely yeah you know so that that could be another way of answering is well if they're elect they will hear the gospel yeah and as paul says in romans 10 how will they believe unless they've heard and how will they hear unless somebody's preaching to them and and how are they to preach unless they are sent so tying you know the the the, uh you know a, a sinner calling out to the name of the lord to be saved confessing with the mouth believing with the heart is tied to the the sending and commissioning of the local church, right? Of the church Mm -hmm. to send out these guys. So, Mm -hmm. um, yep. And and so God, yeah, God's ordained the end. All the elect will be saved, but he's also ordained the means uh, for uh, ministers with beautiful feet to go (laughs) proclaim the good news. You guys have beautiful feet, both of you guys. Um, Yeah, thank you. (laughs) And uh, (laughs) hey, we live in Southern California. You you expose your feet often (laughs) at the beach. I know. Um, Not where I expected the conversation to go. Yeah. Uh, well, and speaking <laughs> of that too, I've made in God's image. I mean, we're, we're all religious beings. We all, it's natural for us to worship, worship something where it, before the fall is natural. It was easy for us to worship God, but then after the fall, that's distorted. So people are worshiping something, whether it's God or themselves yeah. or something else. And so all these places, remote places in the world that haven't heard, the gospel, they're worshiping something else oh, already. Yeah, they still definitely worship. It's not like yeah. they're just kind of sitting there doing nothing. It's they're they're worshiping the sun or the ground or yeah. ancestors or whatever it is. So they're like there's there's that like like that Calvin quote that you had mm-hmm. that I think beautifully summarizes it. He like that's that's where that sense of divinity is placed within us. Mm-hmm. Which is what um Jonathan's been talking about this whole time. Yeah, it's we uh we know something should be worshipped and we want to worship. Yep. And we place our worship on something wrong. Yeah. Unless yeah. The gospel's revealed to us. Yep. There's a Yeah, even I even like to highlight, you know, uh mention this even for atheists. Yeah. Um atheism is as much of a religion oh, as, as yeah. Christianity. Go, you know, watch watch um National Geographic channel or Discovery channel. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And 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 then and, and like just think about record the the language that they use to describe the cosmos, right? Totally. Whenever they use the, you know, it's, it's astounding. It's astonishing. It's yeah, Neil deGrasse Tyson. That's is, worship. Uh, yeah, totally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. He's the high priest. Yeah, yep. He's the high yep. priest of atheism. Absolutely. Um, I wouldn't want this conversation to go without, you know, I'm going to kind of add some stuff to this question I have is, you know, there is a sense of, um, 
common grace. They, they, I mean, grace is the context content in both revelations, common in the first special in the second. Right. So we, when you think about the no, the no eight covenant and common grace connection, what happened there, um, common grace is now applied to everybody and all of creation. And so we see that played out also in general revelation. And then obviously special in the second grace is applied to saving grace. Right. So, um, the Noahic covenant is not a Salvitic covenant. And so we know that. And that's why it could also be applied to uh, the um, natural revelation. So with that said, um, I also think like it sounds like both these revelations also hit their highest point in all history in Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ, as eternally God, the son, came in human nature and he was physically here in history. So that's that's a natural revelation, general revelation. He he was in on earth, part of history, skin and bones, just like a human like you and me, but he's also God. And so and he is the word, John one one. The word became flesh. So he is also special revelation. So I don't know, I was I was kind of reading Bavink recently and he he said something about that. He said, you know, Jesus is the high point of both revelations um do you have a comment about that it looked like you were going to say something john oh well who am i to improve upon bobbing <laughs> i i just say amen and uh no i yeah i i think it is it is fitting that yeah, jesus walked on the same dirt that we did mm-hmm. right and you know he he took on flesh he dwelt among us um and and he revealed in a supernatural way or he revealed the supernatural God in a very natural way so that, you know, he could, he could say to Thomas, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, so that, you know, that kind of ties in. There's a, a lot of different uh, areas we could go. This, this uh, notion of nature and grace, which, you know, Augustine talks about mm-hmm. and, um, and Aquinas picks up. And I think the reformers, they, they, they don't buy it wholesale, but they, there is this notion of nature and grace of, of grace, perfecting nature or, um, you know, glorify, ultimately glorifying nature. And that's what Jesus has done with our flesh is that he's glorified our flesh. And now he, he has our flesh in heaven uh, glorified. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. He's the king of creation. So um, I always like to have my last question be super practical. So after somebody has been listening to this conversation, they can kind of sum it up and be like, where do I go from here? Hit the ground running. So pastorally speaking, your experience, how would you respond to a congregant at, uh, or a visitor at our church who would ask, you know, can the Bible, which is special revelation, and science, which is general revelation, disagree technically? In other words, does God, does what God say ever disagree with what God has created? And how do these hold? How do these two books uh, hold together? Yeah. So short answer to that is no. All truth is God's truth. Yep. God cannot lie. God would not contradict himself in his word with uh, what he reveals to us in his creation. Mm. Uh, and, and so, um, so that's, you know, that's the short answer mm-hmm. to that, but to maybe step back a bit and nuance it a little bit, there is often a confusion uh, when we, when we talk about how we might be able to relate Christianity with science or the truth claims of scripture with what, you know, we, we seem to find in this world. Um, sometimes we, we think of it as 
general or sorry, special revelation and general revelation. The thing to, to know or to, to point out here is that general revelation refers to what we know about God through nature. Science or the science that the exercise of science is the study of nature, right? So they're not mm. they're not exactly the same thing, mm. although there there definitely is some overlap there, right? So so science should be restricted just to the study of nature, not necessarily what can this rock or this fossil or this you know amoeba teach me about God. Yeah. Um. So that's I, I think if 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 religion and science could just stay in their lane, I, I think we could, we could <laughs> exactly. make a lot of uh, progress here. Right. And, and we wouldn't necessarily be butting up against each other or have this internal conflict. Nevertheless, it's always important to keep in mind that everything that we observe, whether with it's our eyes or something we read, or, you know, we hear it with our ears, all of that has to be interpreted. Hmm. So whether you're looking at a fossil or, you know, something under the microscope or something in the telescope that needs to be interpreted. And we do need to interpret what we see and experience through the lens of God's clear teaching and special, special revelation. So mm -hmm. when the truth claims of science, say the, the prevailing scientific view that, uh, you know, uh, that man has animal ancestry, that there was no one, uh, that there was no uh, singular man named Adam, right? With the clear teaching of, of the opening chapters of Genesis, we need to, we need to believe what God says, take his mm -hmm. authority, right. Over, e even though the prevailing scientific view says X, Y, or Z. Mm -hmm. And yeah. there's some open handed things too, in the yeah. Bible that could be taken like, well, if you don't believe in six literal days of creation, then you're not Christian. Well, there's Christians that definitely believe in, uh, those six days are not six 24 hour days. So sometimes there needs to be theology to explain Bible on how the Bible is explaining nature. Yeah. And it's yeah. like you said, it's what's the scope of scripture? Is it trying to explain scientific principles or is it explaining the, like for lack of a better term, theological principles? Is it, is it explaining to us who God is and who Jesus is? Or is it saying like, Hey, I'm, this is, uh, Moses writing us to, to, uh, to explain the, the exact precise origins and how, how old the earth is and all, all this stuff. Um, mm. so maybe, my, my like, kind of last practical, somebody who's struggling with this, it's like, man, I'm, I'm, um, I'm, I'm just not sure. Like, how, how would you, like, where would, no, no, would you start off? With? Like, how would you counsel somebody who's just, who's really struggling? Like, you know what? I, I come from this, like, maybe metaphysical, like, scientific background. I just, I'm, I'm not sure I can, I can take what the Bible says. And, like, I just see what's in front of me. And there's, there's nothing outside of what's in front of me, just materialistic. How would you respond kind of in this kind of broader conversation to them? Yeah, I mean, what you said, Peter, as far as uh, uh, delineating the scope of Scripture, what, is, what does Scripture actually say? So we affirm that Scripture is inerrant and infallible in all yep. that it affirms. Yep. The question is, does it, uh, does it affirm? Did it affirm that the world was flat? Did mm -hmm. it affirm a, a geocentric universe? I think most of us as Christians have understood now, come to understand that Scripture, in fact, did not mean to affirm those things, literally, yeah. but uses phenomenological language or uh, observational language. Yeah. Um, Galileo famously said that scriptures teach us how to go to heaven, not how the heavens go. And I think that's still <laughs> sound advice. Right. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, somebody who yeah might be more scientific minded, who is, you know, uh, is convinced of a 
of a, a very old earth who uh, is, you know, uh, convinced of, uh, you know, what we could, you know, ev evolutionary, uh, the evolutionary model by, by and large. What I would want to do is rather than getting caught up on the specific details, like, you know, debating uh, about, you know, exactly what uh, Lucy looked like or, you know, <laughs> yeah. what, you yeah. know, yeah. What, what, you know, trying to debate about this, you know, this fossil um, to, to step back and, and to say, OK, do you are you affirming science? Um, uh, are, are you affirming science as, uh, as as is is your science staying in its lane, or it, are you viewing science as worldview as yep. a religion? We talked yep. about yep. Uh, how you know atheists, naturalistic atheists, are just as religious as we are. Totally. If you view ev evolution as your primary source mm -hmm. to answer the questions, "Who am I? Where did I come from? And where am I going?" You're then then you, that's a false religion. Yeah, and Scripture has a better answer to this. Totally. Yeah. Well, yeah, I hope uh, even with this, this explanation, there's like Reverend Moore said, there's so much more we can get into with both of these aspects. Um, but just an introduction to um, how the reformers understood this and how the Bible talks about it. And this is not a reformed, quote unquote, distinction. Uh, like you said, I just think they developed it further than, than a lot have. It took some, some good from the church fathers and, and the medievals and, and all that, all that stuff. Uh, but thanks for coming on and, and talking um, to our audience about general and special revelation and, and using a pastoral's heart to explain this. And so uh, what we're doing for all the pastors who come on for season six is uh, if you want to plug your church. So where you guys meet, what time you guys meet, address, all that stuff, and, and what they can expect when they come to your church. All right. Yeah, sure. Thank you. Yeah. So again, as was mentioned before, I'm the pastor of Trinity Presbyterian Church. We meet in Capistrano Beach, California, which is near Dana Point in San Clemente. Uh, we meet at Palisades Elementary School uh, and uh, we have morning worship at 930 a.m., followed by uh, Sunday school for all ages. And uh, you can check out our website, tpresbyterian.org for more info. Awesome. Yep. And we'll have information on our show notes if you guys are interested in and you're in the area or you know people who are in the area to uh to plug them their way and to, to hear the gospel weekly um and that 9 30 a.m is not in the bible it's just that's what we see in in, in kind of just <laughs> nature it's just what worked for socal people although you have to give them what was the SoCal even 9 30 stuff yeah i was about to say <laughs> give them the socal 15 yeah. which is 9 30 but it's like really 9 45 that's at least when i was yeah. at oceanside even though our our uh, service <laughs> was supposed to start at 10, but really 10, 15. Um, that's what you have to expect for the beach people because they're, yeah. they're, they're not as prompt unless you're Dutch and then you're very prompt. And yeah. So yeah, uh, thanks for remorsing. Um, yeah. It's been a pleasure talking to you again for the second time for somebody who doesn't listen to podcasts. Yeah. We, we got you going. Happy to do it. Thanks again for having me. Hope you enjoyed today's episode in our season six introduction to reform theology, where all of our guests come from Westminster Seminary, California, either current faculty or alumni who come from and graduated from Westminster and are serving institutions in churches and academies in the U.S. and all across the world. Where we talk about reform theology through the lens of our confessional tradition, Westminster, the Heidelberg, Belgic, and the Cans of Door. I myself 
I'm a graduate of Westminster. I'm heavily influenced, obviously, by the institution and love to share this information with those who don't know this tradition as well. Yeah, and myself as a layperson, theologically interested in in Reformed theology, this has been extremely helpful this season and then the previous seasons, the last few years in the book clubs, but particularly the, the focus of this season whether you're a layperson or not, uh, having all the guests come from Westminster Seminary, California has been helpful. And you'll get an understanding of why that seminary has been so influential to obviously Peter, but myself. And most especially, uh, my pastor at my church is a Westminster Seminary, California graduate. Yeah. So if you guys want to find us, one of the easiest ways of helping us out is to find us on Apple or Spotify, whatever podcast catch, but especially those two rate and review us. And if you can share us, share an episode, share a season with your friend, that's, that's usually how we, how we uh, build our, our crowd.